All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28 um, in a minute. Uh, but uh, we're, we're leaning into some tough questions and some really revealing questions this January. It's been an amazing time of just hearing the stories of people and the way that the Lord is, is really uh, opening hearts and minds to really examine who we are. Um, and when you hear stories like that, when I hear stories like that, of the Lord doing that in people and them just being uh, kind of overcome, it makes me think that there's probably also a fair amount of people who have been working really hard this January to keep those questions at bay. That the Lord is pressing into you and you're doing everything that you can. I pray, I pray that this morning he would just break open the floodgates of your heart. That you would welcome in the searching questions of the Lord. That you would say, Lord, search me and know me. See if there's anything offensive in me and lead me in your way. I pray that he would do that today. We're leaning into these questions of who we see ourselves before the Lord as. What, what kind of people, how do I believe the Lord sees me? Who do I believe that I am before him? What drives me in life is another question we've been asking. What is it that I'm pursuing with everything that I have, everything that's in me? Where am I finding my security, my rest? What has a hold of my heart? These are the kinds of things we've been unfolding and unfolding. And today, we're digging into another question, a question of hardship and struggle. What do I do? How, how do I make sense of those times when it seems like my life is just getting turned upside down and I suspect that it's the Lord himself who's doing that? What about those seasons of your life when you're, when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're dealing with hardship? My son, when he was little, he was given this puzzle. And it, it was a board puzzle, and it had a picture of a train and a tugboat and, uh, and an airplane and a, and a hot air balloon. And, the, and it was a four-piece puzzle. When my grandparents would visit us, they would bring these thousand-piece puzzles, and they would spread them out on the table. And I think there's an interesting analogy of life and growing up in that, that there are seasons of our lives when our view of what's happening around us is a four-piece puzzle. It's not that complicated. It seems like it goes together pretty easy. There's not a lot of questions that are being raised. But it seems like the older we get, it's not that the picture of life is getting larger necessarily. It's that the life that we're seeing is getting broken into all these smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And it's becoming this complicated puzzle wondering how does this all fit together? And that's what we're dealing with with these questions is we're saying, Lord, take apart the puzzle. Help us to see the complexity of it and then help us see the picture that the puzzle is in a way that, that is something that only we can see if you're leading us in this. When we come to the text today, Matthew 20, it's the story of a couple of brothers. I grew up with a brother, 14 months older than me. I love stories of brothers. And I love how when there is a union of brothers, they can create a kind of a reality and a perspective on the world and how things work that 
It doesn't matter how right or how wrong they really are as long as the union of brothers holds strong. That was kind of me and my brother. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody have siblings like this or friends like this where you have a relationship that kind of is a world of its own. It's a life of its own. Jesus called disciples, 12 of them, to come and follow him on his earthly ministry. James and John were a couple of them, brothers. There were a couple sets of brothers in this, but James and John were these brothers who were some of the earliest to come and follow Jesus. They were some of the closest disciples that Jesus had, and they seemed to have this union of brotherhood that I'm talking about. I wanna read the text, and then we're gonna dig into their lives a little bit and see our lives through the lens of what Jesus is doing in his conversation with them. From Matthew 20, 20 through 28. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, the other 10 disciples heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray for us. Father, Illuminate your word for us this morning that we would see uh, truth here, that we would understand uh, what was taking place, that we would be humbled by it, and that we would rest in the knowledge of what it is that you're showing us, and not just what you're showing us, but that we would rest ultimately in who you are, and that that would be enough. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. James and John are behind this. It's their idea. They send their mom. My mom would have done this, I think, because I'm a mama's boy. She would have gone and she would have done this, but they send their mother to ask the question, hey, in the next kingdom, the kingdom where you're reigning and all that, that you've been talking about for a while, my boys, let one of them sit at your right and one at your left. Would you do that? Now these brothers, Jesus gave these brothers, James and John, a nickname And you read about it in, where is it? It's in Matthew 3. Jesus gives James and John a nickname. He calls them the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder, which kind of makes you wonder if their mother is thunder, right? (laughs) She comes and she asks, these sons of thunder, they have this fiery personality. In Luke 9, Jesus and his disciples are traveling around. They go into Samaria. There's this village. It's unhospitable to the disciples. And it's James and John who go to Jesus and they say, uh, you know, they're not really 
being hospitable toward us. How about you, Jesus, call down fire from heaven and burn this city to the ground? That's the sons of thunder. That's the way that they're wired. That's the way that they think. But their question, can we sit at your right and your left in glory? It's not a question without foundation. They've been walking with Jesus for a while. James and John had just recently witnessed the transfiguration where they and Peter had gone up to a mountain with Jesus and they had seen him turn into this radiant light and Moses and Elijah, where they were witnesses to, to that. They knew that the reign of the Messiah was beginning. Jesus told them the reign of the Messiah is starting and they knew that Jesus had a special place in the presence of God. These are the pieces that are coming together in their puzzle. They had just spoken with Jesus about heavenly rewards that included the promises of thrones for the disciples. You can read about that in Matthew 19, that Jesus is talking about this placement of his disciples in glory, that they have this place with him. And they knew that they were special to Jesus. They were part of an inner three with Peter that got to do things that the other disciples didn't get to do. And so they're thinking about this and they're thinking about what's coming next and they're wanting to understand and sort of secure their place. And it's not altogether a bad desire that they have. They wanna be as close as they possibly can be to Jesus in glory. The problem is, why exactly do they want these positions? The other 10 get indignant when they ask about these. But there's this perspective that they're bringing that's drilling into what we're talking about this morning. And what we're talking about this morning is what about when God turns your life upside down? When he starts to bring the full truth of his will and his plan and his purpose and what he's doing in you and through you, and he starts to bring it to bear, and you realize, I don't feel secure in what he's doing with me. I feel like he's taking more away from me than he's giving me. This is where they are, and they're entering into this conversation. At this point, all they have in their puzzle, all they can see of the picture before them is that there's this relationship between service and reward, that they've been serving the Lord, And they feel like it's time to broach the subject of, let's talk about the reward of of this. We've, We've been with you. You've told us some things. You've given us a little bit of a peek into what's coming. And we just kinda wanna flesh that out a little bit more. And I wanna ask you about your own faith, your own spirituality, your own view of yourself as a person who perhaps is a confessing Christian, somebody who says, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and that I, I live for him, my life is wrapped up in his. Or maybe you're a person who says, I'm not a Christian, but I think I'm a spiritual person. Or maybe you're a person who says, I don't believe in all that spirituality and God, which is a profoundly theological thing to say. Uh, to say of God he is not. But let me ask you, what's driving your faith, wherever it is, whatever it is? Is it some sort of service and reward equation? That you do what you do spiritually to get what you want to get spiritually? Because I would contend the answer is to a man and a woman in this room, yes. To some level, to some degree, yes. I do what I do 
Do you realize, though, when we say that, that we're making God karmic? That we're saying, at least in some measure, good begets good, evil begets evil. And then when God has moved into the picture, that God is dispensing karma. I do good, I get good. I do bad, I get bad. I do good, I get good. Is that in you? Is that why you're here? Because the guilt of not being here on a Sunday is something you'd just rather not have complicating your Sunday or some degree in there. Is this what Christianity is about? That you follow Christ and you serve him in exchange for a reward of some kind? Now I hope that this is a problematic question because we should be saying if we know anything about Christianity, but there is reward for following Christ. There is reward for being a follower of Jesus Christ. There's heaven, there's glory in his presence forever. There's everything sad coming untrue. There's, there's, there's all this brokenness and all that's wrong being put right and that's an incredible reward. And yes, 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 it is a thousand times yes. But is the reward the destination is the question. Is the reward why we do what we do? Is the reward in heaven the thing that we're after the most. And it matters when you're suffering and you're struggling. Because if you're suffering and you're struggling and your life is falling apart and your world is getting turned upside down and you believe that God is the one who is doing it and you believe that the point of following God is service and reward, then how can you not think that you are somehow failing in your service because God is somehow seemingly withholding his reward? And we have this very small, simple puzzle of suffering and just feel like God must be on me. He must just be mad at me for some reason. James and John, they don't know what's about to happen. They have no idea what's coming. Jesus knows what's coming. They don't. And neither do we. I mean, when you look at your own life and the position that you occupy right now, there are things coming for you, maybe by the end of today, maybe by the end of this year, maybe by the end of this decade, that I guarantee you, you have no way of knowing what's coming. But the Lord does. The Lord does. They ask for this place of prominence. They want to be right there with him thinking that what gets them right there with him is service and reward. And Jesus says, no, can you, can you drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? And they answer, I love the answer from the sons of thunder. Yep. I, we can. We can. We've we kind of seen it all, haven't we? I mean, we've seen the persecution. We've seen the way that you've interacted with, with tax collectors and Pharisees and prostitutes. We've seen the way that you've done. We feel like we're in the groove. We feel like we see what there is to see. Oh, brothers and sisters, I've been at Midtown for six months. And I go through these seasons of feeling like I see what there is to see. And then the bottom falls out and I feel like, ah. I feel like I'm learning from the beginning again and it's over and over. And that's not a midtown thing. That's a God thing. That's God revealing his will to me and directing me and showing me and breaking me and tearing parts of me down and building parts of me up and using people in my life to speak into that and to do that. But a year ago, I didn't know that was coming. I didn't know that was coming. 
but he turns it upside down. Now I'm kind of, you know, into the sermon right now. I'm in a little bit of a groove. But I want to stop and just say, lots of pain this past year. Lots of hardship. Lots of confusion. Lots of seeing the Lord open and close doors in a fair measure of darkness in terms of where I was and where he was leading. And I know that for many of you, this is where you are. That you so want what James and John want. Just tell me the end. Tell me the end of the story. Tell me that when all this is done, whatever it is, that I'll get to sit at your right and my brother will get to sit at your left. And yet, God has something for James and John, for you and me, that runs so deep, so deep. They don't know what they're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, we can, of course, we're able. Jesus doesn't say, no, you can't. But he says something incredibly sobering. He says, in fact, you will. Even though they don't know what that means. And he was right. Jesus knew what was coming. And what was coming for these brothers included incredible suffering. James was the first of the apostles to be martyred by the sword of Herod Agrippa II in Acts 12. One of the inner three with Jesus, the first to go. If you read the passage, it's very unceremonious. It's two verses. James was beheaded and Peter was arrested. And that's all James gets, even in the pages of Scripture. John was present at the crucifixion, was the one who was there with Jesus' mother as Jesus was dying, and Jesus from the cross looked at him and said, she's your mom now, and Mary, he's your son John was the one who was arrested, exiled, became blind, ended up on the island of Patmos where he had the vision of the book of Revelation. Such a trajectory for the sons of thunder, isn't it? That gets us to ask the question, what changed in them, around them, for them, that would take them from being two brothers who are wanting to know that they get the right and the left hand of Jesus in glory, they're serving, they want the reward, to two men who would lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. What happened in there? It's important for us because it shakes our economy of service and reward and says maybe it's not about the service and the reward, but maybe it's about the way that God is changing us. And then if it's about the way that God is changing us, why is he changing us? What is it that he's trying to change us toward? What about us is he wanting to make different? And at the heart of it is this commitment that we have to service and reward and service and reward and service and reward when the Almighty is before us saying, but I'm calling you into a relationship with me. 
I'm your reward. Me. Randy was talking last week, Randy Drawn down at downtown, and he told this story about um, this science lab that had all these mice that they were using for study and the lab got shut down and they had all these mice and they were trying to figure out what to do with the mice and somebody had the idea that let's, let's let them go. Let's set them free. So they take the cages and the mice and they take them out to, the, to a field someplace and they open up the cages expecting that the mice are gonna be like, yay, woo, and off they go, you know. What happened? They opened up the cages and the mice said, no, <laughs> no, we're good. Why? Because they were cage mice. They were mice that were born into captivity and they were raised in captivity. They weren't wild. They weren't free mice. And so they chose the cage Converting your spirituality into a system of service and reward and service and reward is a cage. The resurrection of Jesus is the opening of the cage door. That's happened. If you're in the cage of service and reward, the cage door is open. The reason you're in it is not because you're locked in it. It's because it's what you know. And it's because it's what you don't want to leave. But the power of the Lord working in James and John's life and all these things that they're witnessing, he is transforming them. Remember this. It wasn't James and John who went out and sought Jesus and said, we want to follow you. It was Jesus who was relatively unknown walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and seeing James and John and saying to them, you, come follow me. What that means for you right now is whatever level of degree of imprisonment you have in your system of service and reward, if the Lord has called you to himself, he's called you to himself. You're the kind of person he wants to be around. You're the kind of person that he wants in relationship with himself. As broken as you are, as boisterous as you are, as obnoxious as you are, as much of a mama's boy as you are, like James and John, as much of a daddy's girl that you might be. These are the kinds of people that Jesus calls to himself and says, with you, and these ridiculous things that you say, like call down fire from heaven and smite that village, that'll show them. He calls you to bear witness to his love. But here's the catch. The way we bear witness to his love is by living in the freedom of his love and not just knowing about the story of his love. And so he's calling James and John. You don't know the road that you're walking. You don't know the things that are coming. You don't know the cup that you're gonna drink from, but Jesus knew the cup that they were gonna drink from. He knew that it would go through James' mind. I'm about to have my head chopped off. He knew that it would go through John's heart. I'm watching him die. Jesus knew the arc of the story. He knows the arc of your story. He knows what you're right in the middle of. He knows a few months ago when the bottom fell out. He knew. And he's with you. Last year when your world got turned upside down. 
at the end of the semester this year when your world gets turned upside down? He knows. He knows. And what he's not saying in the gospel is, well, there's your reward. You've been a pretty lousy servant. He's calling you through this. He's calling you into something deeper than this arrogance of posturing and jockeying for position in the eyes of men. He's calling you to rest in what the Apostle Paul called the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He goes on, for his sake I've suffered. I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes through service, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If what drives your life, question we've been asking this month, if what informs your view of yourself, another question we've been asking this month, if what holds your affection and your sense of worth and security, another question that we've been asking this month, what if, what if, it's not about these things, but it's about the overwhelming joy of knowing and resting in how long and wide and high and deep is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. What if the point of following the Lord Jesus is to rest in his love, to rest in his mercy and his grace, and to quit trying to prove ourselves and to earn our position? What if that's the story of the gospel, that the cage door is already open and freedom is better than the cage? It is the story of the gospel. It is. What does that mean then in suffering and hardship? It means that even in these things, the Lord is working. And I'm not saying that to minimize your suffering and struggle. I'm saying that because it's true. The Lord is present. He's in it. He's working. He's meeting you. He's faithful. He's good. And you can't see the arc of your own story, but he can. You're never charged with the responsibility to hold your own life together. That's not your job. It's not your job to hold your life together. And when that's the case, you're free. If you're not having to hold your life together, you're free to rest in him. You're free to trust in him, the one who holds all things together. I pray that for all of us, that this year, 2011, would be a year that is definitive for us in our understanding of who we are in our relationship with the Lord. I pray that where the Lord takes his sons of thunder and his daughters of thunder, where he takes us, that he would grant us courage and faith and confidence to rest in him. So that we agree on the deepest level of our being with the Apostle Paul, who also said this. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit has been given. The cage door is open. 
I pray that in your hardship and in your suffering and in your trials and in your wrestling, that you would rest in knowing that the author and finisher of your faith knows the arc of your story and that he is good. Pray with me. Father, just as James and John didn't know the arc of their own stories, I don't know the arc of mine and I don't know the arc of anybody else in this room. I don't know what's happening in people's lives right now. The depths of the pain that people might be in the middle of right now. Father, I know that there is an instinct in our hearts sometimes to feel like if people can't understand, understand our pain, they can't speak into it. I pray, Father, that you would speak into our hearts and into our pain and that we would welcome your voice. Um, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to see that we are not constrained and bound and imprisoned by some, ser- uh, s- some system of service and reward, but that in you we are holy and dearly loved, that all our debt has been paid by your death and resurrection when our faith is in you. Lord, would you help us to believe that and to rest in that and to enjoy the freedom that comes from knowing you, even when you're turning our lives upside down. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.